0: Hello, everybody. And welcome to yet another exciting episode of JavaScript Jabber. My name is Steve Edwards. I am the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mime, but I am still your host. Today with me on the JavaScript Jabber panel, we have AJ O'Neill.
1: Yo, 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 I am coming at you live from not yet the new house.
0: Not yet the new house.
1: So you're still in the townhouse? Yep, still in the townhouse. I'm coming at you live from a place that, wait, you didn't come by the house, did you?
0: No, you just, cause you had, you didn't have it yet.
1: I'm coming at you live from nearby where Steve and I had dinner together.
0: Yes, yes, at the famous Applebee's there in Pleasant, was it Pleasant Grove? I forgot. I think it was, wasn't it Chili's or was it Applebee's? No, it's Chili's, you're right, I'm sorry, it's Chili's. Yeah. It's, so like, it's like that. It's too mixed up. Well, sorry. Difference. It's like we well, you know what it reminds me of? I just saw this on TV the other night, you know the scene in Office Space? where Jennifer Aniston works at that one little area where there's like four chain restaurants right together and they get confused as to which one she works at. It's like shot teas or something and then all the other chains. So it sort of reminds me of that scene. But uh, anyway, moving on from AJ's residential domicile to Dan on the other side of the world. How are you doing, Dan? I am doing fine from the same old house in Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv, Israel. So how warm is it there? Did you, uh, you guys nice and toasty still or did you get the cold? like we did here.
2: Uh, Actually, it was surprisingly chilly up until a few weeks ago, but now it's really nice weather. Not too warm, not too cold, just right.
0: Yeah, chilly. So you went to Chili's restaurant, it's chilly there in Tel Aviv.
2: Well, you know, chili is... We are on it today. (laughs) For sure. Chili in Tel Aviv is a really relative term, let's put it this way. That's correct, yes.
0: So here in Portland, yesterday, this is uh, early April, and we got dumped on with snow. All the schools had to close. I mean, we do that with a quarter inch of snow anyway. Panic around here, oh snow! But, I mean, we got a few inches of snow, it was crazy. Mount Hood's had like 30 inches in the past few days. So, late season snow. And, also before we get to our guest, I'd also like to introduce our uh, studio audience that we have here today. Thank you, thank you very much. It's always nice having a studio audience.
1: I'm so flattered. <laughs> Thank yeah, you, yeah. everyone. Well, I'm they paid happy you to be here. here.
0: Yes, yes, it's fun. It just makes gives you a better environment. Anyway, finally, after all that, we get to our guest, Mr. Drew Baker. How are you doing, Drew? Great, thanks, Steve. So we are here to talk today about Drew and how they use story. Wait a minute, storybook, right? We we're talking about storybook and story block ahead of time. I got confused. It's easy. So, as intro, Drew, why don't you tell us about yourself, what you do, who you work for, why you're famous, all that kind of stuff?
3: <laughs> well, not so famous, but I uh, can answer the rest. No, we, my name, uh, yeah, Drew Baker, and I work at a, a company called Funk House, which I started about 10 years ago with two partners. We are a digital design and development uh, agency here in Los Angeles, which, by the way, has been 38 degrees Celsius this week. <laughs> so we're 38 on, remember, Celsius? Yeah, I think oh, it's what, so close jealous. to like a hundred, I think, yeah. Oh. So you guys talking about snow, we, we're sunny Los Angeles, as always. Yeah, so we do a lot of design and development of what we like to call sort of high, high design with specific business case websites. So a lot of B2B stuff, but in, in industries that are competing on design. So a lot of like boutique hotels, a lot of Hollywood kind of related things, visual effects companies, directors... Uh, editorial companies things like this and moving into things like architecture companies that need to look good and are competing on looking good and high design but have a specific business case like they're trying to convert rooms or they're trying to land the next commercial job or things like that so that's the kind of work we do
4: hey folks this is charles maxwood from top end devs and lately i've been working on actually building out top end devs if you're interested you can go to whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription once again that's
2: topendevs.com i'm very curious with that kind of uh, clientele and th- that those types of websites what's your technology stack you know before we talk about the various tools oh you that... stole my question <laughs> <laughs> well great minds think alike but yeah yes, i really yes, curi- yes. i'm you're really curious what a high end design agency uses these days because we're kind of on the one hand we're kind of spoiled for choice with so many options for building websites and on the other hand somehow it seems like every option you look at has its own downsides and limitations so it can be really tricky to pick one that really checks all the boxes so i'm really curious as to what you guys are using
3: Yeah, I think maybe the best way to answer that is to talk about how we kind of got to where we are with the stack along the way. And it kind of illustrates some of your points there, Dan, about the upsides and the downsides, because it's been quite a journey in the front-end world in the last sort of five years. It's really changed a lot.
0: Really? Um, What do you mean? I don't understand.
3: (laughs) Well, so when we started, we were essentially just a WordPress template shop. You know, a lot of PHP rendered themes to WordPress. So you know our stack then was PHP with a bit of JQuery on the front end uh, and that oh, was kind of it. Yes um, reminds me yeah. of things. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't you know and it's funny because PHP has this bad rap but it is a very web friendly language as far as those things go you know uh, it, it's definitely you feel that it was written to build websites whereas a lot of these other One's websites as part of what they do, but anyway, so it wasn't. It probably wasn't as bad as you know. I think its reputation now has, but it certainly wasn't great either. So anyway, we we were on PHP and WordPress for a long time, and then in this agency game, you you're really always playing catch up to the latest cool showcase website that your client saw on the website somewhere, and you have to meet this expectation. And so more more and more animation, more and more page. Page transition animations between page loads and trying to get more towards single page apps, and so this was like early days of Vue. No, not even yeah, Vue. Very early days of Vue. Ember was like the hot framework at this point. I don't even think React was really on on the radar yet for us at least. And then, so we moved to Vue rendering a single page app, but living kind of in a WordPress theme. <laughs> so it was very weird. Uh, and our own kind of Frankenstein trying to get towards tying a CMS to a decoupled front end, but not really decoupled yet because that wasn't really something we you know, had had come out as like the best practice yet. And so we did that for a little bit, and that was a total disaster and didn't scale very well and was horrible for SEO and all these other things that we found out. And then we finally did this big push into decoupled architecture and had a full back end that, that powered a front end completely separate and only talking to each other through some sort of API layer. And so that was a whole process trying to figure out what is the best CMS for the majority of the work we do to use. And that I still don't know if we were talking <laughs> about story block before this. I still don't think it's a settled question. Our requirements were, it had to be open source, I'm a big believer in open source and trying to embrace that when we can and always if possible. And I didn't want it to be, therefore like proprietary we are building three websites a month for the last 10 years (laughs) so we have 300 something clients that we're hosting and dealing with so having a cms that just might go out of business i heard this great anecdote at a meetup one time that was like i i love all these new cmss i can't wait to see which half survive (laughs) and so i think that's totally true and we didn't want to pin our whole business on a proprietary cms that might go out of business so we felt like we had to be able to self-host whatever it was or at least have a pathway to doing that if something went sideways and that limits your choice really quickly you're basically in like these older cms's at that point wordpress drupal there's a few new ones like strappy was a really interesting one that we looked at a lot Mm -hmm. but those are very unstable like strappy was going through some big rewrites when we were making these big decisions anyway so what we decided to do was go deep into a headless wordpress setup and really get our hands dirty and and sponsor and and be involved in the wp graphql plugin so turning wordpress into a headless cms via just graphql api and that graphql uh, plugin now we had such a small part of it. We're just more like boosters than we are like real people. But Jason Bile, the guy that develops that now, and he works at WP Engine, has done just tremendous work with that plugin now. And it's uh, so that's our stack now. Is WordPress is a CMS running GraphQL API uh, as the output, and then on the front end, we now as much as we can, we're Nuxt all the way with um, hmm. hosted on Netlify doing static site generation for for the websites where that makes sense. And there's a few big publishing websites we've done for big magazines and flubmagazine.com like, uh, would be an example big music magazine where that, it's just not possible to render that one yet because it's thousands and thousands of pages so that one is running server-side rendered mode on heroku which i hate
0: <laughs> so with <laughs> the with the node back in so you're running next with the node back in then
3: yeah, so Nux runs its own sort of Node server, so yeah, it's living on a Node instance of Heroku, so we can scale it up and down and all those kinds of things. But it's very, it's still surprisingly fragile. I'm not in love with Heroku for a lot of reasons, like it'll just crash and not really tell you why. And yeah,
0: is that Heroku or is that Node? Because I know that when I've heard comparisons with people who you know have run you know like a PHP server, where it's really yeah. easy to integrate you know PHP with Apache on a you know, on a Linux type server, you just plug it in, you know, set up your php.ini and you're off and running, whereas Node tends to be more fragile and it takes more to keep it up. So are the issues...
1: Oh, you're running you want to fight? You want to fight? <laughs> oh,
0: trust Not me, every- AJ, you're the last person I want to pick a fight with on this stuff. Trust me, I'm just going on what I've heard other people say. So Because I haven't actually tried to run a Node server myself.
3: No, you're probably right there a little bit, Steve. Like, it definitely, it's hard to separate Heroku and, and Node in, in my example there, but yeah. It, and, um, and
1: what, what about DigitalOcean, where you just have guaranteed 100% uptime at one quarter the cost of the cheapest, crappiest Heroku? Yes. Yeah,
0: I would like to point out that DigitalOcean is not a sponsor of this podcast at this time. This is the opinion of AJ be. O'Neill.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, be. it's just, it's just, I don't understand why people talk about fragile thing because everybody complains about how expensive it is and how there's all the cold boot times and all this stuff. Somebody told me the other day, they said, Oh yeah, we're using we're using Google functions. It's great. Yeah, everything's really slow right now because of the cold boot, but if we just paid five dollars per route which is really cheap, it all go away and be fast. And I'm thinking, or you could just pay $5 for, I don't know, hundreds or 1000s of routes. Yeah. I just don't, I don't understand why people are talking about crappy technologies that don't work well, when there are simple technologies that are incredibly cheap, that require very little learning overhead, that you can just get up and running with. That's, that's my point.
3: Yeah, that's no, a, it's a good point. And I've sort of lived by this mantra that maybe has biting us in the butt at this point, which is trying to avoid infrastructure, trying to avoid DevOps as much as we sort of can and and happy to pay like for us at our the price points that we're sort of working at, I'm happy to pay a platform cost so that I don't have to deal with it. And so I like but it. that's
1: the thing you have yeah. to deal with more crap with the platforms yeah. than if you just go with the bare bones, simple stuff, you know, you don't need a DevOps person for DigitalOcean, you need yeah. a DevOps person for AWS and for Heroku and for all these things that are complex and have so many configuration things and have all this upkeep you have to do DigitalOcean, set it up once five years later, still running. If there's any failure on the hardware automatically migrates over automatically you do nothing you don't have to go in you don't have to reset anything you don't have to change your instance configuration it's just set it and forget it and it'll run for years
3: and years and years and years yeah that's good advice that's something i should look at but that now falls on my to do list of Things I have to deal with <laughs> is moving a couple of hundred websites from Heroku to DigitalOcean. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't move them
2: regardless of how good DigitalOcean might be. And personally, I have no experience. I wouldn't do it all at once in any event. <laughs> no, of course, <laughs> I, I would try one, make sure it actually works for you the way that you expect it, and then maybe then I'll, I'll, you know, gradually migrate everything else but uh, going back again to your configuration so based on what i understood from you you're essentially just using wordpress as a back end headless cms so that's just where you store all your data as it were and i imagine that the main benefit for you guys is that if in terms of the content you it's just like managing a wordpress site so in terms of putting all the content in there these are tried and true processes that you and your customers are familiar with. I guess that would be the main advantage for you. Totally. So
3: the CMS is a known factor. Like most clients, new clients have someone on their team that's used it before. So it makes the training for the client really easy. And it's also a huge ecosystem around that. You can find it WordPress developer very easily. You know, that's something that sorry.
2: Yeah, although you don't you don't actually well, you can find a WordPress developer really easily, but you don't actually use WordPress as WordPress. You just use it <laughs> well, as a sort of a business oriented sort of a database. So you don't really need a WordPress <coughs> developer from my understanding.
3: You would think so, but inevitably you're dealing with a lot of sort of plugins to do more admin centric things. Like, you know, some of the, the ones that we've personally developed are extensions to well, one handle like deploying. So because we've got a static site on the front end, a lot of the times this, the concept of like publishing a piece of content is different now, you know, you have to publish it and then also build the website. So you have to fire off a bunch of deploy sort of hooks and things into Netlify. So we've built plugins to do that. A lot of times we might have cloudflare kind of involved for not not so much for the netlify stuff but for the heroku server rendered stuff so we've uh, plugins we've built to handle like purging the cloudflare uh, caches and things like that so yeah it's more like those kinds of things you end up building which is you know would be really hard to do on on a closed source cms like prismic or storybox something like that the, you know the hope there is that they've also solved those things for you but you know, inevitably, you get a client that can, comes along and wants something very, very custom. Like a great example, we built a website for this sort of political group called Political Playlist, and so they wanted to build a sort of dynamic email generation service. You'd sign up, select a few preferences, and and then it would generate emails unique to each each user and send out some sort of information about young political candidates that you should be following. And so that we built. A lot of that on WordPress to handle all the content management that goes into that and then integrated it with SendGrid to handle all the email sending that comes out of that. So something like that would be really, really, really hard to do on a closed source CMS. that You can't control anything like that. And so we built essentially big WordPress plugins to handle
2: it. So it's kind of amusing to me. So in in, that in one sense, you've got GraphQL in front of uh, the word of WordPress so in fact you could use anything that hooks up with GraphQL to get the data, or even or put data into that uh, CMS, but at the end of the day, a lot of the thing, the custom things that you're doing are actually circumventing that GraphQL interface and working directly with WordPress. Just because there's such an ecosystem around WordPress that you have so many things that can integrate directly with WordPress, or am I missing the point?
3: No, that's true, but. GraphQL isn't suited to some things, like especially, the, well, at least where it's at in, the, in, in our kind of sys system of responding to real-time events or like, like what I described, like an email, generating an email push on a sort of timer and sending that out. You definitely need that to be like a server-driven thing. So, yeah, like could you integrate GraphQL with SendGrid? That's an interesting solution. But all of the SDKs and everything for SendGrid are, are not set up that way. So you'd be sort of making it, I think, harder on yourself. But what we use the, mostly the GraphQL part for is pulling data out of WordPress to, to, to generate the marketing websites that go in front of everything. So that's...
2: Yeah. So again, basically what I'm saying is you kind of, it seems to me, affirmed what I said, that in terms of the website itself... It's you enjoy working in, in Nuxt with Vue and you've got good integration through GraphQL. And for everything else that's kind of quote unquote non-standard, well, then it's WordPress. So you can use anything that hooks up with WordPress and you can leverage any developers familiar with WordPress to, to do whatever it is that you need to <coughs> be done with the data. Yeah, exactly correct. And and going to that nextjs uh, to that sorry Nuxt part, I, I always confuse my next and yeah. my Nuxt. Going to the Nuxt and Vue, in terms of uh, of Nuxt, are you using mostly uh, static side generation or sus- or server side uh, rendering or or both? W- what do you usually end up using?
3: Yeah, so it's
2: explaining sort of earlier the different ways to do that and now i'm
3: assuming a lot of your audience is familiar with the differences there but essentially server-side rendered is the server generating essentially html code and then sending the full html you know on demand to the user and then the static site generation side of it all is at build time you're generating that html and then that just lives on the cdn somewhere generally netlify and Vercel being the big sort of platforms that that you would use to do that normally you know other than some custom solution. So we I would say 90% of what we do now is static site generation and 10% would be more server-side rendered or single-page app version. And the single-page app version being the server has nothing to do with the markup really and it's just providing a very bare bones HTML page that boots up JavaScript on the client side. Like a great example of of that would be an app that you like log into and is very unique to the user, which we've built a few of these sort of big web app like you know think of like Asana or Mondays.com. We we built a big one like for the construction industry called Polaris. And so that's a single page app. But like that would be one of the only ones we've done
2: that way. Yeah, although I guess that given that you use Vue, it's it's single-page applications regardless of whether you use uh, SSR, SSG, or do everything on the client, because once the content, once the initial page is there, then additional navigations to happen totally client-side or, or not. Or... No, that's, tr- that's true. When you're running Nuxt in static site generation mode, yeah, so like the, the life
3: cycle for the user, you know, if they view the website, they get served HTML off the CDN, the complete website. And there's some client-side sort of setup that happens. And then after that, all all page routes that you visit through the site are all client-side only. But they're in the nuts world, what's happening there really is a whole bunch of json payloads have already been kind of given to you and you just oh yeah, yeah.
2: For, for, for sure but that's the reason why i actually i actually refer to all the different architectures that you mentioned all of them for me are single page applications or spa the the one that's totally client side i refer to as client side rendered or csr so versus SSR, you've and SSG, you've got CSR. So that's the distinction that I usually make there. And one more point that I wanted to make is that these days the the lines are kind of blurring between SSG and SSR because what I'm seeing more and more often with SSR is that that first after that first render happens on the server side, if the content is reusable, it's actually cached in uh, CDN, even though it's rendered on the server, even though it's SSR. So the first time you've got a request, the CDN passes that through to the server, it gets ssr on the server, sent back, but from that point on, it's delivered from, from the CDN. So it's kind of similar to SSG, only that instead of happening at build time, it happens on first request. So in, except for potentially the first unlucky person to hit uh, that, that particular page, all the other people actually benefit from the performance advantages of using a CDN.
3: Yeah, in the Nuxt world, that, that future that you're describing, that is being called incremental static rendering. So ISR is how what they're referring to it as. And that's the future for sure. We, it hasn't landed in Nuxt yet. I think the Nuxt 3 will support that that's coming out i think in september is the first kind of real production release of it they're in beta right now but yeah incremental static rendering is the future for sure that will solve it so that we don't re- we probably would never use ssr after that then because there's big publication websites with thousands of pages that would take a long time to build
2: oh yeah for sure the big advantage over ssg is is particularly for uh for the larger website where the build time can be prohibitive, if you need to generate all the pages in advance on every build,
1: wasn't this yeah. already fixed in WordPress a decade ago? I mean, well, we're calling it ISR, but wasn't this the way that <laughs> well, WordPress worked back in 1998?
2: Yeah, sort of, but look, we can, we can, uh, all joke about the fact that we are creating a really complicated world and then investing a lot of effort in simplifying the complications that we ourselves created WordPress is simply not a single page uh, single page applications now if you don't need a single page application by all means don't use it the problem these days it seems and I've, I've bemoaned that I think in previous episodes of this podcast is that it's getting to the point where your only option, for not doing single-page applications is more or less WordPress. And it's not that WordPress is bad. It's actually great, except for all the various security issues. Uh, Well,
0: there's other issues, too. You're dealing with, and I say this as someone who spent many, many hours and days dealing with trying to cache from PHP templating on the front end, but uh, there's more than just security issues. There's other performance issues that you have with strictly PHP rendered stuff.
2: Yeah. But again, if you, if you can use a CDN, then you have your CDN in front of your uh, PHP server. Now there are plugins these days that can integrate them together. I personally not use them, so I can't comment on their quality, but, but it's a solvable solution, but it seems that for whatever reasons, the, the front end or full stack world, at least the advanced part of it, has chosen a different route. And that route right. is is either Nuxt or Next or Remix or stuff like that. And WordPress is becoming more and more relegated to doing the simpler types of websites, which is totally legitimate, but it, that seems it's, to, to it's be the direction. Like, this co-
3: Obviously, you know, we're talking to... We're on the JavaScript Java podcast, so we're talking to people that think like us. But I like to kind of come back from this as what are the clients paying for, you know, everything we just talked about, no, none of our clients care about, they don't care about, is this server-side rendered? Is it static generated? Is, you know, what's the CDN? They no, they're not, we're not getting paid for that. I think ultimately we're getting paid for a website that works. So maybe that's all related. But really how it goes down is I want this really slick animation when I go from this page to that page. And you just can't do that in PHP, you know, on a server-rendered yeah. platform. And so the clients have dictated that we have to go to a front-end solution. And that's just the world we live in because they pay paid bills.
2: Uh, okay, and, so and, I'm going uh, okay, yeah, yeah. to get us moving forward. Yeah, yeah, I know. I just have to make that point. So... Prior to my current employer, which is Next Insurance, nothing to do with Next.js, I actually worked at Wix. And Wix is also a single-page application as a web website builder and a CMS. Again, although the person who's using Wix to build the website doesn't even know that. And really, the main reason... That it was implemented as a single-page application is exactly for the reason that you just mentioned, which is to create, enable, and create all sorts of fancy animations when transitioning between uh, pages in the site. And going back to your point, I totally agree, and that's actually that is still is Wix's selling point, which is you know you the, the customer who gets the website doesn't really care. What technologies are used to build the website as long as the, the website delivers on the requirements? It could be WordPress, it could be Nuxt, it could be Wix. Anything that is able to deliver, again, address the, the customer's requirements, then go for it. Yeah. And then I think the second
3: part is driven the move away from WordPress. You know, which kind of contradicts a little bit of what we were talking about in far as like plugins and the developer ecosystem around WordPress was that I, I mean from my point of view, no one is learning PHP anymore. Like it's all JavaScript. Like if you come out of college, like did you learn PHP? Like if you've got a computer science background, like you learned maybe Python or you learned JavaScript. And so trying to find young, good PHP developers was is much harder, I've I've found, at least in Los Angeles.
1: Hmm. You've got I mean, people you have, coming you out have of college been, learning programming languages that can be used in the real
2: world. It, right? What <laughs> colleges are you talking about? No boot camps, AJ. boot camps, AJ. It's, yeah. it's, it's it's the boot camps.
3: Oh, I
1: thought he, I thought he said college. He said, no, college no, i mean yeah,
3: I'm in mean colleges. I've hired a couple of couple of smart college kids, but yeah, <laughs> it's a but good point, you, c-
1: people aren't learning usable programming languages in college, are they?
3: Well, some of the guys I've learned come in pretty knowing JavaScript pretty well, but not like building a website with JavaScript, but understand it. Uh, you know, like if yeah. I asked them to describe to me like what an so, object is in JavaScript, they would know what
2: it is. So so my son is in uni and he's learned Python. He's learned uh, Java. He's learned C. He hasn't learned JavaScript and likely won't. And he certainly won't, you know, learn PHP in, in university. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Makes all sense. right.
0: So before we move on to what we actually came here to talk about, I was I did want to say that with all the acronyms getting thrown around here, I thought it was in that scene from Good Morning Vietnam. With all the acronyms. I can put the video in there. Seeing how the VP is such a VAP. Maybe she keep the PC under QT and, you know, that whole scene. <laughs> it's a great scene if you haven't seen it. So anyway, storybook. Let's talk about storybook and something that uh, at uh, Funkhouse you guys use quite a bit for your design side of things. So why don't you tell us about what Storybook is and why it works for you guys?
3: Yeah, it, it actually is a good segue from the, the old PHP stuff that we were dealing with. You know, when you're, dealing, when you're working in those older frameworks, the idea of sort of componentized development doesn't really exist, uh, you know, it's it, got template parts, and you can import those kinds of things. But on the, on the front end, in the JavaScript world, there's been this big move into component-driven architecture. So what that means is like, well, web components is a the thing now in the browser. But if you imagine building a website like a giant jigsaw puzzle, so instead of building the whole thing, you build little pieces of the jigsaw, that's a component. So in our example, that might be the hamburger menu. You know, and you just have one component is the little the hamburger button. And then another component would be like the panel that slides out when you click the bat- button. And they're two separate components and they can be built totally independent of each other. That's a view component. And Vue's whole single file component, SFC, that's their, their magic was being able to put style, JavaScript and markup all in one file. React does a similar thing, but Vue really lent into this single file component thing. And so we use Vue. And so it, it's natural to build websites that way. And what Storybook has allowed us to do is to build those components in isolation. So instead of having to sort of have some broader understanding of the website, you can build just the hamburger and just the menu panel totally separate from each other and control the props that go into powering this component and and mock up the events that come out of this component. Like when you click the hamburger, you wanted to emit an event like hamburger clicked these things you can build this all in isolation so storybook is like a a component environment but it's really been made for and been mostly used for as like a living style guide for a website so you can imagine like airbnb might have a, a very detailed set of components that they use for their entire website and it would be handy for them to be able to sort of show to their to new developers or even to their design team like here's every variation of the menu button or here's every variation of like the add to cart button or whatever it might be. And Storybook allows you to sort of like show that style guide of like here's all the button sort of stories. It might be the red button, the green button, the activated button, the deactivated button, you know, all those things. And so it's more of like a living style guide, but we don't we don't really use it that way. We use it more for the this independent component environment that we can build, the developers can build by themselves and then we can show just like this interactive to the um, style guide kind of to the design team and they can give QA notes looking at it without having to have finished a website or have dealt with like the, the API maybe not even working at this point you know like populating a CMS full of all the real content that the client has delivered to us can take sometimes longer than at this point it can take to build a big majority of the website so Storybook has really enabled this component driven uh, approach for us which has been One, fantastic for QA because we can QA components now when they're finished by themselves. And also from like paralleling the effort of speed, like I can have 10 people building components for a website now, and they're not going to overlap each other and, you know, step on each other when they're trying to build like just the homepage. So we can can really speed
2: up our builds as well. And so it's been huge. So a couple of questions about that. Let's see. I'm trying to organize which question I want to ask first. So I'll start with this. Do you usually use your own components, or do you use uh, third party libraries of components? Where do you usually go in that? On that?
3: Yeah. Unfortunately, we, we have to build all of them ourselves most of the time because our our websites are unique and high design and everyone is different and that's a real bummer because it's really hard we have our own internal component library of more like utility like a slideshow component or an animation component that would like count up a number or something like these these ones that don't have a lot of look to them that we can use as kind of a starting point for most websites but a lot like a video player is a great one example of like a shared component that we use but I would say on average, we're building 40 to 50 components for each website. Yeah, that's a lot.
4: Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance. I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out. And, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching.
2: So, and... My next question in that context is where, okay, before that, how do you do your styling? Is is styling usually part of the component or is there like a global style, some sort of a shared CSS that you use across the entire site? And in any event, is there any tool or tooling that you use in order to create the unique styling or st- that I assume your components have?
3: Yeah, that's a really good good point, Dan. and you're, and you're kind of getting to like the, the biggest pain point, which I think is CSS. In general, I would say CSS is one of the hardest things to do right that I've seen. And a lot of developers will come into a job like ours thinking that they know CSS and, and they really don't when it comes down to it uh, on this like high level. And it's one of the hardest languages to learn, I think, because there's no real logic to a lot of it. And it's just knowing all of the edge cases and how they all play together. So it's very complicated. So CSS is a problem for sure.
2: It's um, I like to say that it's the concept of the DSL taking to the very extreme and then some. Yeah, it's it's a mess. So
3: what we do is every website will have a style sheet that is just CSS VARs that are common, like font sizes, common colors, different units of measurement, like the website might consistently use a 40 pixel margin on left or right or something like this, or paddings in certain places. So there'll be a style sheet that's just um, a global CSS VARs. And then that's like when you're getting onboarded to a new project, that's kind of one of the first things you want to look at is just kind of get an idea of those. And then we'll have a global style sheet, which really will only end up being maybe a hundred lines at most. And that will capture things like a global Z-indexing, like the header is it a higher Z-index than the footer or whatever it might be. And then some basic like page structure stuff. That that will be only the stuff that's in global. Then we'll also have another global style sheet that is like our media queries that will just be like phone, tablet, desktop, greater than desktop, whatever those might be. Just, just common, just so not every component has to define some made up media query breakpoint. And then we'll have one other global style sheet that is just common transition animation CSSs, like using the view transition class, like fade in, fade out, slide left, slide right, those really common ones. So those are the only global things that we would have then everything else would live in a component. So if you're using the view single file component, there's a block in there that is all just the CSS. And those are scoped to that component. So you can write CSS for that component, knowing that it's not gonna bleed into
2: other components or anything like that. So, so that's how we do it. So effectively, it's all CSS in JS.
3: Well, no a view component is well, yes, I guess it is, but it's not like we're writing some CSS version of JSX. You're writing CSS. Well, in our case, it's actually SAS like we.:
2: yeah, yeah, the tooling handles it for you. So a few questions about that. How do you First of all, how do you ensure consistency across all the different components within a particular project if each one of them gets its, its own effectively its own CSS or its own SAS? And the, and also kind of derived from that. Is Let's say, assuming a customer comes along and says, hey, we have a new VP of marketing. We've changed our brand. All our fonts have changed. All our colors have changed. Please update our website. What do you do then? Yep. So consistency,
3: that is is—is an important one. The solution that I've looked at a lot and is something that we might move to at some point is Tailwind because that, that would be a very interesting solution to a lot of these things and, and might. Might be really beneficial. I, I'm a big supporter of the Vue JS LA meetup group, and, and Tailwind is popular among some of the, the more senior people that attend it. And it's yeah something I thought a lot about. So so if you've got listeners out there thinking about these kinds of problems, look at Tailwind as a possible solution here. But for us, it really just comes down to training, and then and then linting tools. So we we really use prettier for everything, and we use ESLint, and we use all the view recommendation specs that come with that and everything, which helps to a little bit, but certainly just at having a, a rigorous like training and PR review and just kind of trying to get our developers up to speed to know what we we all do, so that hopefully any of our developers can look at a component and kind of not really know the difference between them all and who wrote them. So it's, it's certainly a more manual process than I would wish. Uh, I would love to hear better ways of doing it because it is certainly a pain point.
0: So when, you're, so when you're designing your components in Storybook, is it, I'm always thinking about the mechanics behind the scenes. So are you like designing, got it looks right, now you can export it and dump that into your actual code base itself?
3: It's actually or or paste in, it actually lives in your, in your Nuxt site already. So all your components just live in the components directory like they normally would. And then you have a stories directory that has a bunch of storybook stories, which are just JavaScript files that just basically use that component like you would in a normal view template somewhere else.
0: So then it's just a matter of importing them into your component and...
3: Well, they're already mm. sort of like Nuxt actually auto imports the components as you use them. So it's very easy. Just You just don't even have to do anything, really. just start writing a page template and use the components like you normally would. And the only real difference is you NPM run dev to look at the Nuxt site or NPM run storybook to fire up storybook. So you can, even, you can have them both kind of running at the same time. And so, um, yeah, it's very good. But, but honestly, once we've kind of start the right. website building part of it, because normally we build all the components almost before we even start building the website we we probably stop using storybook at that point and then move move into the um, the website building part storybook we don't deliver that to the client really no one cares they never asked to see it but to Dan's second question about you know what would we do or what have we done when clients want to change out a font and colors and things like that that's where your your CSS variables really help just switch out the font name like we have a CSS variable normally primary font secondary font so if we had to change out the fonts we just change it in one place and it will spider throughout the whole website really easily. We actually have websites we've built, one for a, an agency called Compadre that part of what they wanted was to be able to have different parts of the website, have the CMS pick a font so that the user could write, you know, case studies on a big marketing project that they had done and change the fonts for it for just that one case study. And so, yeah, we that's how we did it. We have CSS variable called, you know, case study primary font and then case study secondary font and then the different colors. And you just in the CMS... In this case, they were just picking from uh, a dropdown full of all the Google fonts. And so, yeah, it's easy switching out variables, so it's really good. You know, obviously, sometimes you have to tweak it because font sort of line heights are always a little bit inconsistent and things like that, but... It's really not so bad.
2: That's actually a great uh, solution and a great use of CSS variables. And by the way, because I'm, I'm not sufficiently familiar with it, does the storybook actually let you play around with these CSS variables?
3: There's some that are kind of built into it, like a common, like a one that we use is to be able to change out the background color of the storybook, that you, you, like the preview you're looking at. It's like showing you just one component, you know, and a lot of the times you're sort of building that with the assumption that it's going to be used on a page with a black background and Storybook will show it with white, and it would look completely wrong. So you can change out those backgrounds and stuff. And I think behind the scenes, that's using CSS, CSS variables. But that's not really what Storybook is about. The closest kind of thing to that in Storybook would be this idea of not. It was originally called knobs, and you can you can turn on like UI to like control like a color picker or volume slider, you know, or whatever these different sort of knobs are. And those, those, really, what they're doing is changing a prop, a view prop for the component you're building. So it gives the designers a way to kind of like change the prop if it's supposed to be a variable thing. So that that's the closest I would say to that. So
0: it sounds like, I mean, one of the benefits, obviously, of, of a tool like this is that it allows you to get going quickly, right? You get something up, it's already integrated into Next. So
3: speed is sort of a big thing. Um, speed is the big thing, and that's the name of the game for us because... We're trying to sort of get our average website built in three to four weeks, start to finish, you know, and these are full custom, you know, in some cases quite large and highly animated websites. And so speed is the thing. And and that's the real difference between the agency game, like what we're doing, and building like a web app like Airbnb or Asana or Monday.com or something where you have a whole team that's just working on the menu. That's all I do. You know, I have friends that work at Google Maps and they're just the menu person. And so... That sounds exciting. Yeah, doesn't it? But for us, it's just speed and, and paralleling our effort, like being able to have five people working on just the component builds. Because we'll start component builds 10 minutes after reading from the design team. So we don't even have to get Knox installed or anything really. We just so
0: obviously yeah. you're, you know, for any given client, your design's gonna differ, right? You know, different
3: Fully prompts, different, different every different.
0: time. You're completely different every time. But from a storybook standpoint, do you guys have sort of a base Install a base set of things that you work from, or are you building completely from scratch for each site?
3: Yeah, so I mentioned it before with this. We have a sort of a shared component library, and actually, you can look at that. It's components.funkhouse.us. I've just it's public. does None of that looks particularly good because it's like all utility stuff. So it's like a slideshow or a video player and these kinds of things. So that. What you're looking at at components.funkhouse.us is our internal shared components library that will use for things. And that's what Storybook looks like just by default. We haven't changed it in any way. If you just set up your own Storybook, it would look like that. And so that's what we, we do to sort of share code across repos, essentially.
2: I think it would be a great idea if also in the show notes, we include uh, some links to some example sites that, you know, highlight or showcase your capabilities. I think our audience would be interested to see what you're able to achieve using the stack the development stack that you just that you're describing
3: yeah no i'd love to of course we we just got nominated for a few webbies actually which has been really exciting this week for us one for um adidas, a project we did for adidas that's very experimental and weird called um songs from scratch and uh if you look at that website it's strange i'll, I'll just i'll give you a hint of what you're in for it has two curses <laughs> so it's definitely strange and then another one for a client was called ai foundation and so they're building they're trying to sort of build personal ais for people and that one we're nominated in the corporate communication strategy uh, field and and that one's very slick
2: and Polished and and sort of minimal. So I've got two questions which represent like or extremes, as it were. So I'll ask them both together and you can decide which one you want to answer first. So, question number one is Do you also use stuff like WebGL? And question number two is What do you do to ensure accessibility? So, WebGL is absolutely the future in my mind. Well,
3: funny enough, WebGL specifically is not the future because it's going to be. Web GPU or whatever the new browser sort of API they've built is, but essentially WebGL, yeah, WebGL is is absolutely the future, and that's something that does keep me up at night thinking that we're not good enough at that, and we need to be better. And we're, you know, so we've used it a bunch and have a few websites that take advantage of it, but it's always in a a showcasey kind of way. Like there's this one part that is WebGL or like this one visual effect on this you know on the about page of a website or something. It's never. The whole website in WebGL, which I think is probably where we're headed, or I think, or some version of that. Just getting more video gamey, I think, is just the way the world is going. So I, I think that that's the future and some certainly something worth learning and being very good at. You will do very well if you are good at
1: that. I, I always love it when a when a good old fashioned blog just spins up my GPU for no reason, hits a max, and <laughs> takes my battery life down to one hour. That's that's the future yeah. I'm really hoping for too. Yeah.
2: Uh I, usually I we, one of those usually out. it's the CPU that eats up your battery, less so the the, the GPU, I have to say.
1: False false 100 false it is the gpu every time my laptop my, my old laptop would last you know a few hours it wasn't great but last a few hours under normal use open up anything that used the gpu be it a website or zoom or lots of conferencing software just goes straight to zero just 45 minute battery life on a on a battery that would otherwise be
3: five hours i had read the other day that Google Docs is all webGL.
2: Well, true? I don't know, but the problem with you know and that's the reason I asked both, both my questions together is is that one of the issues with webGL or whatever web whatever uh, graphic library they come up with is that it effectively circumvents HTML because you're rendering everything as vertices and stuff like that and then you lose the semantic aspect of the of the html which is why i also asked about accessibility because if you're not careful not really really careful then once you start going webgl accessibility goes out the window
3: yeah and accessibility is something that has been really important for us like because we have a bunch of boutique hotel clients and so there, there's actually a lot of stuff going on legally in that space around ADA compliance and things like this. So accessibility is is a big legal thing for them as well as just the thing that we should be doing. So we, we've done a lot in that space but haven't had to really solve it in the WebGL space yet. But Dan, you're hitting on a big, a big future problem for sure. And I'm very curious to see what the solutions come out for those kinds of websites in that accessibility space for sure.
1: So th- something that I think is weird, is with mobile people, it seems to me that people generally accept that the way mobile is is the way mobile is, right? If if I'm using your app on an iPhone, it's generally considered it's acceptable that we use the iPhone's date picker because that's what I'm used to. So if you give me the iPhone date picker, even though the new iPhone pickers and the latest iOS 15 or whatever are absolutely tarted, it is what I expect and will accept, right? Mm-hmm. It's really strange to me that on the web, people spend so much time trying to customize everything and create stuff that's way, way worse because they're trying to make it. Who cares if it looks the same in Firefox and in Chrome, right? Yeah, the font should be the same. The branded images should be the same. But if I'm used to Chrome, don't I want the Chrome date picker? If I'm used to to Firefox, don't I want the Firefox date picker? If the number picker, things like that. You know, And the same is true on, on mobile. If I use the web on mobile, I'm, I am do, really don't want your custom whatever, whatever. I just want it to work well. And so it's this is something that's it, it's kind of a strange space because yeah, if it's a web page, I could see there's a lot of stuff that we'd want to be really branded. But for the components that are interactive, that are actually just part of the platform, why?
3: <laughs> it's great, AJ. I should, I'm gonna make sure clients listen to this podcast. No, it's true. <laughs> and, and, and I think what's happened is the browsers, like those, those universal controls with the browsers have gotten way better. And so you totally can do that now. And I try and do that wherever we can. I think what it was, was in the future, in the past, sorry. It was those words.
1: No, it's, it's the same either way, in the future or in the past.
3: It's, <laughs> it's valid. <laughs> no, I think they've gotten good enough now that you can get away with that for sure. So yeah, hopefully the future is less of that stuff. And and we've avoided it. I think with some hotel booking stuff, we've had to build custom date pickers and they're always bad and they're always annoying and there's always some weird edge case and it goes like
2: Yeah, hotels and airlines always have their own uh, wonky date pickers. I don't know why that is.
3: <laughs> well, I think because there's a lot of well, can you imagine the, the A B testing that would go into an airline date picking thing or a, hope, a big like a, the Marriott's date? I hope there's a lot of A B t- um, testing going on for those because picking a, a range of dates through two cusp, like there's no browser interface for pick a range of dates that you're checking in and checking out of, you know? Sure, so there
1: is. You pick your check in date and you yeah, pick and your you check out check-out date.
3: date. Yes, I know. But no, I, don't,
1: yeah. I know what you're talking about, and they never work. They never work. And so you you click one date and then you click the other date, and then it instantly closes and it's like, Oh wait, no, that wasn't the right date. So I open it back up again and then I click it and then it resets the date to be the end date. It's like, no, I wanted to change the beginning date. I click the beginning date. Oh, that's an error. Can't have the beginning date before the, or the end date before it's, it's all. No, just give me two. Just let me click. Oh, beginning date, end date.
3: Let it work. Yeah. AJ, you're just always coming in off the top rope with, uh, with some good takes. I like it.
0: (laughs) He doesn't know any other way to come in, let me tell you. So, all right. So we're getting close to our time limit here. But before before we move into picks, I had one question. I want to go back to when we were talking about the server side of things. And you were talking about how there's uh, some sites that you can do, you know, pre-rendered HTML static sites versus having to go to a server-side rendered site just because of size and build times and so on, I'm imagining Have you figured out in your experience where that line is, where static HTML becomes too cumbersome and too big and you have to start moving to a server-side rendering? I'm I'm assuming it's not a hard line, probably sort of a range depending on a number of things. But just curious to see in your your real-world experience uh, where that line tends to be.
3: Yeah, so the limiting factor is how much you can... DDoS your backend. Because <laughs> that's essentially <laughs> what is happening on the uh, during build of a static site is you're just DDoSing your API. And so the limiting factor is absolutely what kind of bandwidth your API can take and concurrent. It's not just a bandwidth thing, it's yeah, it's a concurrent user sessions. And so, like for example, we struggle we we struggle with that because the word the wordpress sort of hosting community is not thinking this way yet they're still very much in like oh we we generate php templates and we have a varnish coach in front of it and it's a very uh, old school kind of way of thinking yes and so even though we use like uh flywheel which is a very very advanced wordpress host but it's owned by wp engine they still sort of look at this like okay how much traffic are you going to get and you go well it's the API is not even really used by the public because it's all static site. So you know, on a monthly, you're going to get a couple of thousand people looking at the website. You know, from your point of view, from the service point of view. But what they're seeing is a couple of thousand people looking at the website in one minute <laughs> because they're getting DDoS by this build process. And so, in their minds, they think, "Oh, well, you've got this insane amount of traffic at this one point." So we need to scale up this server to be able to handle millions of people looking at the website on a monthly that's not what's happening here and so that has been a very
2: hard thing to kind of get these hosting platforms to realize so scaling up that, if i can interrupt i would like just to say that scaling up is the is the happy flow in this case, because the worst scenario is they decide that you're actually uh, detoxing the site and then just block your traffic and there goes your build process.
3: Yeah, exactly.
2: Exactly. And that happens a lot. Well, not for us now, because we have such a relationship with
3: the flywheel people. But yeah, I would say what we found in, in the flywheel kind of environment that we live in is after about a thousand websites, the build time kind of gets above 10 minutes. And that's sort of when the clients start to get feel like that's too long. So a 1,000 page routes is basically where we would decide that server-side rendering is probably the solution here. But having said that, we have a few that are bigger than that, but it's for clients that are okay with a build time between 10 and 20 minutes. And
2: And I just want to say in that context, I've not heard the ISR acronym before, and you know, isn't it great, the world that we live in with so many acronyms? But I I would like to say that Next.js, for example, in the React world already does support that mode of operation
3: yeah next next is leading leading the pack everything that they do like a year or two later like comes to us in the next view world but yeah next is absolutely the
2: and again going back to my previous employer wix that's also the architecture that wix uses although it doesn't use any of the standard platforms it, it uses its own custom solution but it also does the same sort of thing that is it uh, it does the ssr on demand and then shoves the result into a cdn yeah that's the future for
4: sure hey folks if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages then you're in luck we're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after christmas 2020 without the ads signing up will help us pay for editing and production and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium All righty. So with
0: that, we will move on to picks. Picks are the things that we want to talk about that maybe are technical, maybe aren't technical, just something that interests us. And today we'll start off going by distance. We'll start with Dan. Dan, what do you
2: got? Yeah, so I've got two bummer picks, unfortunately, in this Uh-oh. case. Yeah. Uh, so pick number one, I've been picking it on every episode that I've participated on in the past couple of weeks. I've, I've been absent for a while, but unfortunately, it's still ongoing. And that's the war in Ukraine. It's just key. It just keeps getting worse and worse. The, the images of the atrocities that are taking place there, I I don't know when it ends. I'm really worried that, you know, it could go on for, for months. And I just don't know. It just, you know, really, really saddens me. And anybody who can show any form of support to, to Ukraine, to the Ukrainian people, I I encourage that. I've visited there several times, again, while, while I work at Wix, because Wix has offices there uh, uh, over uh, something like a thousand employees. And, uh, and it's really, really sad to see what's going on in that country. And another sad story also kind of related to the same sort of thing is that a couple of days ago, we've had, uh, at the time of this recording, we had a terrorist attack in Tel Aviv. And three people were, you know, three Israelis were tragically killed in that attack. And one of the people killed a young guy named uh, Eitam Magini actually also worked at Wix. I didn't know him personally, but you know, when it happens in, in my hometown and a person who actually worked at my previous employer it kind of hits close to home. So, so it, it's, it's a bit of sad times and, and I hope things improve all over the world in this regard and that we see less violence going on. That's all I can say. And those are unfortunately my sad picks for today. All right, AJ, you're up
0: next.
1: Well, that's awkward.
0: Sorry, it was going to be awkward no matter. Well, I'm always awkward, so it
1: would have been awkward for me, too. But uh, you got any happier picks for us? Oh, I don't know about happier, but yes. Yes, I do. I absolutely do. Okay, we're changing moods. And first of all, The Lost Metal, it's finally coming out. So this is Mistborn Era 2 from Brandon Sanderson. It is the final book. It was supposed to be a trilogy. It turned up like many of his books being longer than expected. Uh, so the Lost medal is coming out. Unfortunately, it won't be coming out until November, even though he had finished it towards the end of last year. But yeah, so I was expecting it to be a little sooner.
2: Is that a Cosmere novel? Is it yes. related to his previous books? The the problem with yes. him is that I've kind of lost track, you know, if I the next time his books comes out, I more or less will need to reread everything from scratch in order to figure out where I where I was.
1: Just make sure you get the Ars Arcanum in there so that you can get the stories in between the stories cuz and there, there hopefully will be an Arcanum 2 in a few years because there's a lot of mini stories that aren't published alongside the major works. But you need the mini stories mm-hmm. as well. Anyway, the lost. So anyway, Menos. let's
0: go to our studio audience. See what they think.
1: Yeah, yeah. they're oh, excited man. too. That's great.
2: Didn't he also like raise forty five million dollars or something to write a book or something like that? Oh, okay,
1: let's get... Yes. So he did a, kicksta- a Kickstarter campaign coming. that, because previously it was all just a bunch of junk electronics that people were excited about for all of three days and then didn't care about anymore, like the Ouya, the game system, the Pebble, the, the watch. You know, it was just a bunch of electronics products that were cool until they basically were immediately sold to other, some other company or acquired or outdone by another company. And that those were the products that were leading. So he bought burst through the highest sale in in the art category or book category or whatever category that he actually put his kickstarter in in a matter of a few hours and then by the end of the first day had broken all previous records in any other category and then by the end of the month had over doubled the, the previous record so yes what he did was he announced that during corona times because he wasn't able to go to go, go to conferences or and so many of his speech speaking engagements had been canceled and so on and so on and so forth that during the extra time he wrote four entire additional books that will be released starting next year
2: maybe you can tell george martin what the trick is <laughs>
1: I think it has to do with the brain, you know, the way the brain works. I don't think that it's a method as much as his madness. But anyway, so Lost Metal is the final book of the Wax and Wayne series, which is Mistborn Era 2. Mistborn is kind of serious. Mistborn Era 2, the Wax and Wayne series, is a way more light lighthearted. It doesn't feel that it's really a continuation in terms of the the style of the book, but it's it's really fun and enjoyable, but it's probably it's probably the most lighthearted of any of his books and and maybe the least gripping, but still good and enjoyable. I don't want to downplay its its goodness. but i'm I'm really excited that the lost is coming out then. So what was it? Was it last week, the week before recently, when did we have Raven DB on? That was pretty recent, wasn't it?
0: Mm, I think it's been a little while, a few weeks at least I have to
1: look. okay, a week, a month, whatever. Same thing. It's
0: all the same.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's all the same. So I saw a talk, not by the person that we had on, but by someone else that was on happy path performance and how they made really simple choices in Raven DB, assuming the, the happy path. So, and I think this is a good general principle. Whenever you are considering performance, you always want to make sure that your performance is aligned with your happy path. Of what you expect good users to be doing the most, and so they they did a bunch of you know assume that the thing that's likely to happen is going to happen, and if that isn't the thing that, for example, we, we can assume that IDs are always going to be lowercase, and so we don't need to do any lower whatever is given as input is going to match the, the whether it's uppercase or lowercase or whatever. You can assume that generally speaking, your user is going to give you the exact same case that they got. And a lot of databases do this mixed case matching, which turns out to be a huge performance detriment. And it was, it was little things like that. Also, in a JSON string, you're often going to have an escape if there's a quote or something. And so there's, if you can know, if you can, when you write it to the database, you know how many escapes are going to be needed to, and you keep that in the data as you write it to the database, then when you read it from the database, you can allocate exactly the right amount of memory on the first try rather than saying, oh, I encountered a quote. Let me go allocate more memory to put the string in because I need an escape character now and stuff like that. So there's just a lot of really cool tips in this happy path performance Uh, I'm going to get that up on creedsofcraftsmanship.com as well, which again, I'll I'll pick that. Also, I got a coffee warmer for my tea and it works. And I was really scared to get one because almost every review on Amazon for any sort of coffee warmer, if you look at the, the reviews, it'll say, my baby loves this bottle or this picture frame is awesome because they're all just fake reviews and they cycle through. I don't know why Amazon doesn't crack down on this, I guess, because they make money from it. So there's no sense in them cracking down on it. But coffee warmers in particular, almost everything was fake. But I was able to find a review site that gave some particular and I think this one's called Best Nick. It has a weird name, but it's it's real and it works. And the reviews are actually for it rather than being for other random things to do the review boosting. And so, so, now, the,
0: so the coffee warmer doesn't add a coffee flavor to your tea since you're using it for tea? No, it does not. It does not. Okay, good.
1: It's also, this one's kind of strange. One of the downsides of it is it doesn't have an on-off button. It's done by weight. So when you put the mug on on it, if it's empty, it won't trigger it. It's it's balanced so that this is the case. And if it's halfway full or more, it will trigger it. And if it's not triggered, you can just tap it down and then it'll turn on. But anyway, it, so it it... It turns on when something's on it and it turns off when something's off of it. I still have it plugged into a switch where I can turn the switch on and off because that makes me a little uncomfortable. But yeah, so now when I'm when I'm working and sipping away at my tea, I can sip at it very slowly and you know take an hour and a half or whatever, and it's still very comfortably warm. And then we talked a little bit about something earlier. I don't remember. Oh, it's transitions between pages. We're saying we want a transition between two pages, and that can only be done in JavaScript, and that will not be the case in the future. We have the portal element is coming. It's already got experimental support in Chrome, Opera, and a few other browsers. And the portal element is like an iframe, except that it allows you to switch between the portal as the main view of the page. So fingers crossed People that actually build web pages are working on this. I don't know if that's true, but I think it is because a lot of the things that come through, you can tell the the people that designed the spec had never worked on a web page in their life. But this one, I, I think, it is actually intended to solve. These security issues and these transitioning issues and whatnot.
2: Yeah, portal will be awesome once it comes out, but it's been t- it's taking so long. I've seen talks about it like four or five years ago. I believe it when I see it, especially in Safari.
1: Well, okay, I and I, I don't disagree with that. But again, who cares? You know, if if Safari doesn't give you the beautiful transition you want, whatever. Let 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 the old school way of just refreshing the page handle and don't. Don't ruin everybody else's experience for the 2% of people.
2: Drew, ex- please explain to to AJ that if, if it doesn't work on Safari, then it's unacceptable. I mean, unfortunately, in our world, that's true,
3: because we've got a whole bunch of Hollywood creative directors sitting there on, uh, on Macs with their default browser going, doesn't work, you know, and then like, they're the one who signed the check. <laughs> <laughs> But but it's a, that's a good point. But AJ, man, you stole my joke. The the I say it all the time. Like, oh man, this spec feels like it was written by someone who doesn't build websites. That is, I'm glad that you are uh, you agree. <laughs> There's some insane ones out there.
1: Well, uh, we've uh, we've had people on the show that have talked about the spec process before. People that have been actually in touch with web development that have argued for things to be done a certain way and they just get silenced and and i uh i got banned from or no i think i I didn't get banned i got my comments deleted on a recent tc39 proposal but actually it's not even a tc39 proposal it's somebody's personal repository And then the TC39 police came in and told the person how to live his life and what to do and intimidated him into behaving a certain way. And then claimed that because one day the repository may end up on the TC39 and because his personal opinion is that he doesn't like what I said, that therefore my comments, it's just, it was such baloney. But anyway, I don't remember why I started saying that, but you can look at some of the TC39 proposals. Oh yeah, it was this people that have good ideas get bullied. In really subtle ways, so it's it's not the I hate you bullying. It's the it's the well, uh, you're not being considerate of other people's opinions, even though their opinions are obviously wrong. You know, when people are being plenty considerate and just trying to say, hey, I don't think this is going to work because it seems like, or maybe we should introduce this in a different spec because it doesn't seem like it's going to pass in this community. It, so there's a lot of there's a lot of political bullying that goes on, and people that have the right idea. I don't know what the power structure is, but you can look at some of these comments and tell there's obviously a power structure and people that have the influence can decide what ideas get accepted and they're not necessarily connected to the developer community and and what's really going on. So I, I mean, it, it, it is, I mean, you can see a lot of it's out in the open. You can see it, you can judge for yourself. But anyway, um, so I, but I think that portal has a good chance of being useful. And the, the conversation that we had, I think it was with, I've got his face in my mind, but I'm blanking on his name. Anyway, I, from what I understood, there will be transitions with portals. And that makes sense, because you are going to be transitioning between one page and another page. So there should be some sort of CSS transition to help with that. And so hopefully the portal element will alleviate that that burden you were talking about where things have to be SPAs, even though really all you want is a slide transition between pages or whatever. And then as always, creedsofcraftsmanship.com, that's where I, I try to keep a curated list of talks that are just great talks about software engineering, about principles, about, you know, not just what's cool and hopefully none of what's cool, but what's useful and what helps us to build readable scalable apps of you know, various types uh the live streams you can catch me on twitch tv slash cool age 86 and then beyond code bootcamp is the youtube channel for the good stuff the the good clips from the live streams as well as lesson content and then insane i'm done sorry for that long ramble
0: that's okay we're used to it okay Well, th-
1: this one was especially long because
0: I, I i was engaged i agree Thank you for making his longer, Drew. Anyway, moving on to our guest, Drew. What do you have for us for Christmas?
3: Uh, the thing that I've been really interested in lately is the what Max Howell is doing the, the, with the successor of Homebrew. Have you guys been seeing oh, this? Oh,
0: yes. Time? I heard about this on Shop Talk Show, I think, or something uh, this week. Webinstall.dev, yeah. you-
1: the successor to Homebrew?
3: I made that. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> But yours doesn't involve crypto. So, you know, it can't be the future, uh, AJ. <laughs> oh, but Three. It, it, it will. We're going to be accepting Dash. So what Max has done with the, with it's called T, and if anyone Oh, that's check, right. T dot T. XYZ. That's right. Yeah. So very interesting problem. This This, to me, I'm curious what you guys think. This is maybe the first actual real use of the blockchain that I've seen that is actually seems to be useful. Very interesting. He's sort of, trying to figure out a way to monetize like the long tail of open source. And it's very interesting just to sort of recap it. I'm sure you guys all know, but you have this, this situation in the funding of open source right now where, you know, think of it as an upside down pyramid and the people at the very top are all these very publicly known working on high profile things like Evan, Evan from view and is a great example. Like these are guys who are full-time open source getting paid by Patreon and sponsorship and all these sorts of things. But views built on the back of like countless NPM packages and all kinds, of, like what is the value of like Pearl? You know? And are they making money from that? You know, so what T is trying to do is figure out a way to allow like micro payments all the way down from from those top more publicly known and well funded open source platforms all the way down. I
0: suppose thing. that's better than turtles all the way down.
3: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so tea is very interesting. Okay. Tea, I think is going to be very interesting and if that if that takes off, we'll see, but it's um, you know, it's going up some up against some pretty big, you know, micro- what who owns who owns our uh, npm now? Microsoft. Yeah. I lost track. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's very interesting. I've been I've been looking at that a lot.
0: righty. Yeah, I've I've been hearing about that too. Uh I've been, you know been a big homebrew user. For, for a number of years. So yeah, that will certainly uh, be interesting to follow. All right, my turn. So with a high point, my dad jokes, but I'll keep you all in anticipation with one little pick. We've talked about Vue and and obviously one of the more well-known build tools that has sort of been taking the dev world by storm is Vite. Uh, which is created by Evan Yu, the, the creator of Vue, because it's so smoking fast. I just spun up a Nux 3 side here recently and was using Beat. I was amazed at how fast it was. But Daniel Kelly, who is one of the, uh, or I don't know, I can't remember if he's on the V team or Nux, always track. I've talked to him on the Views on Vue View podcast. Really cool guy. On Vue School, he has an article, a blog post about how to migrate from Vue CLI to Vite. And I've been looking so much for something like this, you know, just to understand the nuts, of nuts and bolts of, excuse me, can't forget the bolts, of how to change something, say, from Webpack to Beat. So it's on the uh, Vue School blog, and I will add a link to that in the show notes. And uh, for my uh, my dad jokes of the week. One of the, the things that we've all been dealing from an economic standpoint is uh, our raging inflation, gas prices in particular. And so the other day, I was uh, fortunate enough to get gas for a buck fifty seven a gallon. The problem was that it was at Taco Bell. Thank you. Thank you. And then, you know, with inflation. Also, side gigs become a little more important as developers. We all, you know, a lot of times we'll have side projects or other ways we make money. I started a new side side gig of uh, breeding racing deer.
2: I'm just trying to make a quick buck. Right? Uh, I got it. I got it. <laughs> uh, I have to tell you, Steve, uh, Steve that uh, I have a friend who told me that he doesn't really care about the price of gas because he always just buys $20 worth of gas. And so he doesn't care if prices go up. <laughs> Guys, no, that's
1: that's that's a way to do it. It's a matter of
0: less gas for the twenty bucks I guess. But
1: here, I'll give
2: you a
0: rim <laughs> shot for that one. Here. Thank you. And then uh, finally, the other day, I was I was driving down the road up by my house, and I saw these two cows staring at from behind a bush. I was had to think about it for a second, and I realized I think it was a stakeout. Thank <laughs> you, thank you, thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. I like that. So.
1: Can, can you anyway, select custom soundboard?
0: You can add custom sounds uh, onto and, the board. You can upload files if you have them.
1: And this this is part of Riverside, so I could I could get this widget too.
0: Yeah, that's how you log in. I can show you that later.
1: Yeah, that's you'll you nice. have to show it to me because I've got I've got a soundboard here. I got a stream deck now for when I do the live streams, and I have a bunch of goodies like Anakin saying, oh. "It's working! It's working!" Oh, that's and, so uh, awesome! The, I need one of those. We're out of beta and releasing on time.
0: I can think of so many sound effects that I've been trying to find This is a Unix system
1: I know this
0: there's one that I, that I, a uh, local radio station here in Portland used to use all the time. And it was a, it sounded like a clip from a game show and sounded like the announcer from Laughing back in the 60s. But you hear this buzz and the guy just says, Thank you for playing. And I so want that sound effect because it can be so useful. I just got to find it. If anybody knows where to find that one, let me know because I've searched high and low. So anyway, we are very long on time. So we will wrap it up here. Thank you to everybody for listening.
4: And we will talk to you next time on JavaScript Jabber.